Hey everybody, it's Jason from Oddball Show. I hope that you've been enjoying the week that was a segment of Oddball Show. Today we're going to do something a little different. I call it the 12-minute-ish podcast or mental health in 12 minutes. I'm going to explore something that complexes me or drives my curiosity related to the history and present state of mental health. In other words, I don't know about it. I want to learn about it. So here you go. So let's talk about something that has intrigued me in the history of psychiatry and mental health, the ex-patient movement. Or briefly summarized, actism by and for former psychiatric patients and the MAD. Where did this movement come from and why? Let's talk about it. First, let's remember that pushback by patients towards psychiatry, psychology, and older forms of mental health treatment have been around for a long time. Way back in 1620, for example, patients in the notorious Bedlam Mental Hospital were petitioning the House of Lords about their horrific treatment. Now, sketching the entire history since then could fill another episode. So let's just get back to the backstory of what we're talking about. Let's start with the 1940s, post-World War II era. Psychoanalysis, which has been pioneered by Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, and others in Europe, around the turn of the 20th century, have begun to really take hold in American psychiatry. But for the majority of severely mentally ill people in America, state mental institutions were the care providers. ECT, or electroconvulsive therapy, and lobotomies, popularized in the U.S. in the 1930s and the 40s, were widely used. So why does this matter? In the 1950s, there was the first antipsychotic drug, and that was called Thorazine. And Thorazine was hailed as a miracle drug that can make life outside the institution possible for even the most debilitated patients. Meanwhile, mental hospitals themselves were coming under fire. There were journalistic exposés from the late 1940s shocking the public by revealing the horrific conditions in institutions. These articles reminded many readers of Nazi concentration camps. So, changes would have to be made. There was a federal report on mental health treatment completed in 1961, and it shifted the care from state mental hospitals to community-based models. That was the idea. Two years later, JFK signed a health care bill that provided funds to build community mental health centers that would then provide local and compassionate care in people's communities, beginning an era now we call deinstitutionalization. Now, in the 1960s, there were many attacks on psychiatry, notably from sociologist Irving Goffman, his asylum, 1961, based on his fieldwork at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in D.C., not St. Elizabeth's in Boston. That's a whole other story. We could talk about that in another podcast. Maybe we will. He described this mental institution as an instrument of social control and confinement, not healing and recovery. Now you got Michel Foucault and Madness and Civilization portraying the history of psychiatry as political and disciplinary project. Then you have Thomas Saz and R.D. Lang. Both psychiatrists question the terms of mental illness entirely, including Saz's The Myth of Mental Illness, portraying psychiatric diagnosis as unproven and unscientific, excuses to violate patients and their civil liberties. Central to his argument was the idea that physiological diseases had a clear biological cause, which mental disease did not. So then how could you confine someone in an institution and force treatment on them for an invisible and unprovable illness? So for these critics, psychiatry was all about social control, not recovery or care. 
Meanwhile, we were talking about Thorazine, right? Thorazine had lost some of its miracle drug as clinicians realized that it caused tardive dyskinesia, kind of produced negative symptoms like the Thorazine shuffle. Tardive dyskinesia is uh, something similar to tremors, involuntary movements of your eyes, your mouth, really unsettling. And unfortunately, even today, I mean, especially today, a lot of antipsychotics cause it. They're trying to stop it but you know with medications like benzotropine and things like that but uh, honestly like it is definitely something that i've experienced that i had to uh, get off of meds so it wouldn't happen to me thorazine is the antipsychotic that kind of brought that first idea that what is this tarp dyskinesia and why is it affecting people also if you've ever seen the movie one flew over the cuckoo's nest you might see an example of the thorazine shuffle and in fact that book talked about it a lot and in fact if you haven't read that book it's a great book in the 1960s, there was the civil rights movement, the women's movement, and all of a sudden these were winning major political and legislative gains on behalf of oppressed groups. And also the Vietnam War was raging and young people especially were not trusting the norms and values from older generations. And the authority of the psychiatric establishment was wavering alongside other once trusted and feared institutions. So we're talking about the 1970s. This was the political, medical, and intellectual landscape that set the stage for the ex-patient movement of the 1970s. Now, other groups of former patients had existed before in the U.S. For example, patients at Rockland State Hospital in New York founded We Are Not Alone, and in the 1940s, it was a support group for patients transitioning back to the community. But these older groups didn't nearly have as radical an outlook and perspective as the ex-patient movement of the 1970s. So who were these ex-patient folks? Well, the first group that I was really intrigued about was the Insane Liberation Front. It was founded in Portland, Oregon in 1970 by a group of ex-patients and activists, including Dorothy Wiener, Tom Wittick, and Howard Geld. Now, the group sought to challenge psychiatry's authority to diagnose and treat those deemed mentally ill, quote-unquote. So however they wanted to, the Insane Liberation Front wanted to replace that system with more egalitarian forms of care. You got the Insane Liberation Front lasting only about six months, but it had a ripple effect. Howard Geld, a.k.a. Howard the Harp, went back to New York City. I mean, he was known for that for his harmonica playing, but he went back to New York City, returned to New York City, found the Mental Patients Liberation Project in 1971. And in 1972, the Network Against Psychiatric Assault was founded in San Fran. And then uh, that year in Canada, the Mental Patients Association was founded, too. A lot of things happening in 1970s. That brings us to Madness Network News. All these ex-patient groups sought to give psychiatric patients and anyone deemed quote-unquote insane more power and authority in a world that often denied them a voice or even refused to listen. I mean, even today, if you say mental illness is, is based on trauma, some people look at you sideways. Or even if you say, Doc, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a podcast about the Insane Liberation Front, he'll say, oh, that's nice. How have you been sleeping? And that's that's psychiatry these days. Hey, my doctor's great, but, you know, that's kind of what, you know, Insane Liberation Front? Yeah, just take your meds. Anyway, in the 1970s, Think about the 1970s and how no one listened to people who were ex-patients. They belonged in institutions. They were crazy. They were mad. They were insane. They were labeled insane. They were mentally ill, and they were treated as such. All these ex-patient groups sought to give psychiatric patients and anyone deemed, quote-unquote, insane, more power and authority and a world that often denied them a voice or refused to listen. So it's no surprise that a few of these groups began to publish their own newsletters and magazines. The most significant was Madness Network News. That was a magazine founded in 1972 in San Francisco by folks associated with the Network Against Psychiatric Assault. So what was this magazine all about? 
In its first issue, Madness Network News described itself as, quote, communications network for the interchange of energy and support of people in the Bay Area who are trying to change the archaic and repressive aspects of the psychiatric treatment centers that they work and live in, end quote. Now that is a awesome mission statement. Madness Network News wanted to be a place to share information on alternative treatment models. They would answer questions like, how do you get into a hospital and can you get out if you want to? Madness Network News would also channel the quote-unquote artistic energy of people who'd experience madness, though anyone was welcome to submit. And as they put, Madness Network News would be a quote, voice for the domestication of the psychotic process, unquote. If you want to look that up, that's in volume one uh, from the archives. So anyway, Madness Network News continued publishing issues until 1986, and you can access them on their online archive. And I believe it is being renewed and revived by a fellow advocate, Vesper Moore. Shout out to Vesper Moore. He's been on Audible Show. In those years, Madness Network News did succeed in becoming a clearinghouse for the ex-patient movement, helping build a common language and framework for these geographically disparate activist groups. So that begs the question, what common language and goals started to form in this era? As I mentioned earlier, Thomas Saz and R.D. Lang were both incredibly influential in this movement as these psychiatrists cast doubt not only on psychiatric authority, but on the legitimacy of mental illness altogether. And you can see their influence and the influence of social movements for racial and gender equality. In a 1975 Madness Network news article called quote-unquote Psychiatry as Social Control, a Political Analysis, the author denounced psychiatry as a tool for already powerful groups. Psychiatry was largely white, male, and highly educated to control the bodies and minds of already marginalized people women, the elderly, the working class, and non-white, or the term used at that time, quote, third world people, end quote. That brings us to Judy Chamberlain's book, On Our Own, Patient-Controlled Alternatives to the Mental Health System, published in 1978. Now, this drew from the ideas while becoming a landmark text in its own right. Chamberlain coined the term mentalism, or systemic discrimination against those deemed mentally ill, quote unquote. And as the title suggests, she advocated for radically changing the mental health system to favor patient control of, and not just compliance to, treatment plans and goals. Overall, ex-patient groups could vary as to the level of opposition to psychiatric interventions. Some rejected all forms of psychiatric treatment, and others felt care should always be voluntary. But in general, ex-patient groups wanted to shift the balance of power that had, for so long, placed psychiatrists and other medical professionals in charge of their patients. And the movement didn't just write books and publish poetry. Many groups engaged in direct action and political organizing. You got that stuff's network against psychiatric assault, for example, led a multi-year organizing campaign against ECT in California, which had some success and led to bills that limited involuntary shock treatment. So now we are at 1980 and beyond. So where did we go from here? How did the ex-patient movement transform in the 1980s? Well, as the movement grew, so did the opportunities to disagree on the core issues. Should ex-patients lead the way in mental health activism? Should non-patient or medical professionals be allowed to join these groups, or should groups be separatist? Any form of psychiatric medication or institutionalization acceptable, or should these treatments be avoided entirely? What terms should be used to describe these folks? Consumer? Survivor? Ex-patient? You look at tomes for that citation. Major changes in psychiatry, like a growing alliance with pharmaceutical companies in the 1990s, continue to transform mental illnesses defined and treated and how ex-patient activism operates. But exploring that history will have to wait. So there you have it. The Insane Liberation Front. Something I didn't know about. Now I know about it. And now you know about it. If you like this idea or want me to research more ideas that intrigue you, whether it's the involving history of the ex-patients movement, 
to the DSM-5 or anything that intrigues you in the world of mental health, email team at oddballfoundation.org. Check out the show notes for resources like uh, all the Madness Network news, archives, and other books and articles we consulted to make this episode. If you like what you heard or have learned something from this podcast, follow Oddball Show on Spotify, leave us a review, and visit oddballmagazine.com to learn more about our organization. I'd like to thank Irene Westfall for her excellent research into the ex-patients movement and her diligence in writing and co-producing this podcast. I'd also like to thank Kayla Fife for her wonderful audio production. And thank you to all the excellent people of Oddball Foundation for their hard work on this episode. My name is Jason Wright. This has been the 12-ish Minute Podcast, and I'll see you real soon.